0: Hello, everybody. My name is Bas Rudin, a.k.a. L Wapo, and it's me speaking to you with your host, Jeffrey Wilson.
1: All right, ladies and gentlemen, locked and loaded once again, another episode of It's Me Speaking to You, ever faithfully, your, your host, Mr. Jeffrey Wilson, coming to you live and direct from the Gateway to the West. The It's Me Speaking to You studios, my goodness. To say I'm stoked would be an understatement. I get to talk to him yet once again. This guy is my hero. I've heard his... Voice and you've heard his voice too everywhere, ladies and gentlemen. This guy has been doing it since Moby Dick was a minnow, I believe. He's he's done it for them all, man. Access TV, K1, Dream, King of the Cage, Lucha Underground, Maximum Fighting Championship, and the guys interviewed. You know <laughs> some of my heroes, man. People I would love to pick their brain. You name it, man. Dana White, uh, Vanderlei Silva, Hulk Hogan, uh, George Foreman. Frank Dukes. Wow, I listened to that interview again today. Steven Seagal, thank you again so much for taking the time, my friend, Mr. Michael Chavello. The Voice, Mr. Scoop, is joining us today. How are you, sir?
0: Jeffrey, I'm good,
1: mate. It's nice to be speaking to you. Yeah, absolutely. And you're uh, you're back in your homeland, back in Australia, correct?
0: Back in Australia, back uh, down in Melbourne. Uh, finished off a, a very busy year, half the year in the U.S., the other half of the year... Uh, in australia and also traveling around asia with one championship but uh nice to be home and finish for the year and enjoying a uh, christmas break
1: well yeah and you left us not too long ago obviously people who don't know he was uh once broadcasting for a while for the access tv outfit and legacy fighting championship with my homeboy my partner in crime and your former partner in crime ufc hall of famer pat Miletich. but you have moved on like you said you were down there it's man this I've been following this company too, man. One championship a company out of Singapore. These guys are in one billion homes, ladies and gentlemen, in over one hundred and twenty-eight countries. What is that like, my friend?
0: You know, it's crazy. It's in, it's intense. It's a lot of fun. It's a, a very very high level level of production. Uh, uh, probably you know the, the highest level of production I've ever been involved with. And, and these guys are just spot on. Everything they do is 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 done to uh, to perfection. A lot of time is spent on the production values and especially on the television side. As you said, broadcast to 128 countries and over a billion people, you've got to be spot on. And, you know, they're broadcast everywhere from around Asia, the major markets like the Philippines and Malaysia and Singapore and Myanmar, uh over to Brazil and even Rwanda and the UK and just everywhere. So it's an amazing outfit to be a part of. And they really, you know, they, they, they celebrate the martial arts in a way that I've never seen before.
1: Well, and obviously you knew, you know, you are a huge fan, man. And like I talked to you, I sent you a message a little earlier before we went on. You you are so I think the word is fastidious, your research is so on point and you are such a huge fan of mixed martial arts as well as professional wrestling, which I am as well. Um tell me, man. I mean, you go back, I mean, 21 years old, you get this this job announcing for an outfit in Melbourne. You've done the Olympic Games, Fox Sports, what? When did the bug bite you, man? Because as a young man, you interviewed Pele, uh, JYD, Diego Maradona. I mean, you you really started off early. When did that bug bite you? Because like I said, as a professional wrestling fan, and, and almost side, you know, p- piggybacking on that question, who are your influences as you know professional wrestling, etc. When did it start for you, my friend?
0: Well, the story is an interesting one. Uh, see, I, I never wanted to be in media or broadcasting or anything like that. When I was growing up, Jeff, I always wanted to be an architect. That was my dream. Oh, wow. I used to love, you know, drawing. I'd buy drawing magazines. I'd draw houses and I, I was, I was, I really wanted to be an architect. I had my mind set on it. And then in Australia, when you, uh, when you turn, uh, when you go in year 10, um I guess like junior high in America, I suppose, uh, you, you get placed to work experience. So it's a, a week or two weeks, you, you right away to a company you, you might like, in an industry you might like to work for and you go and do, you know, volunteer work for them for a couple of weeks to give you an idea as to what the workforce is like and the job that you might like to do in a few years time, what, what it might be like. So here I am as a, a 15, 16 year old riding away to 20 architecture firms and the freaky thing was that None of them wrote back. I didn't even get a no back. I just, no one, no one wrote back. I stood by the mailbox every day waiting for a letter to come back from, you know, 20 firms saying, hey, we'll accept you to do a week's uh, work experience in architecture and no one wrote back. So it's getting close to the cutoff date and I'm I'm crying to my mum going, mum, what am I going to do? No one's written back. And and out of nowhere, literally out of nowhere, my mum says to me, you've got a good voice. Why don't you do Radio. I said, radio? I don't want to do radio. I haven't got a good voice. I want to I want to be an architect. You know I want to be an architect. And mum goes, listen, just just humor me. Just right away to a radio station and just try and do radio. The Journalists would be a fun sort of thing to do, I think. Just as long as they accept you, don't be a journalist that goes and covers any wars because you get blown up. So right. I'm like, all right. You know, mum always knows best. So of I wrote away to, to, a, to a radio station I, I listened to uh, called Triple M. And weird thing was that within like a week and a half, Jeff, they wrote back a letter to me. Actually, it came on my birthday. I have it hanging up in my house to this day. April 10, 1990, I received a letter. My birthday, uh, my 16th birthday saying, we accept you for work experience at Triple M Radio. So I went nice. into the radio station, and this lady called Deanne Sloan is looking after me, and she looks me up and down, and she goes, what do you want to do in in radio? I said, I don't. I, I want to be an architect. I'm, I'm just here to <laughs> because- still fighting it. Yeah, I, seriously. <laughs> I said, I'm just here because, you know, my mum suggested it and, you know, you guys accepted me. And she looked me up and down and here I was wearing my my denim jacket and a white shirt and a tie and denim pants as you did back in 1990. And she said, I've got a good feeling about you, Michael. I'm going to put you in the newsroom with our journalists So she puts me in this dingy little newsroom, but man, I'll tell you what, it's like a light bulb switched on straight away. Within a minute of being around those buttons and microphones and in a studio in the newsroom, every ambition, every dream of becoming an architect went away and all I wanted to do from that moment on was radio. So I started out doing radio, then I got into covering local sports for a local newspaper, and then that led into later on doing uh, work for a magazine company where I was edit- uh, became a, Australia's youngest ever editor of like uh, nine sports and lifestyles magazines, and then when I was you know 21 years old, um, I got a gig working on Fox Sports, became Australia's youngest ever sports commentator, commentating the uh, the kickboxing and the Muay Thai on Fox Sports. And that was back in '96, uh, yep. and just it's it's gone from there ever since, you know, from there to to, to K1 and the Olympics.
1: Earth. How was that? I mean, I mean that was pretty early on too, and that was obviously hugely monumental. What was that like?
0: Olympics was 2008 in Beijing, and it was it was crazy because uh, I commentated. I think it was if my memory serves me correct, 200 and uh, 211 fights. And I did them all by myself. I didn't have a co-commentator. And I was commentating for the ABU, which is the global feed to all the Asian Broadcasting Union countries. So there was 118 countries that were taking our feed, everywhere from all parts of Africa, Thailand, Mauritius, just a lot, a lot of countries. And to do that many fights by yourself, when it's amateur boxing there's not many knockouts i think in that whole olympic games i saw maybe two knockouts it was long it was it was you know hard work but it was very very rewarding and you know for, for any broadcaster i think to broadcast the olympic games is like it's that's the, the the top of the mountain, you know
1: well yeah it's definitely a, a highlight highlight for the resume, my man, and you know and again, you I mean you've been such a such a voracious fan of combat sports in general, um professional wrestling you know you're we're kind of in the same age range it's funny when I talk to people about professional wrestling anymore. It literally starts a lot with W late WWF WWE Attitude Era. Very seldom do I meet people who really understand the territories. Crockett NWA etc etc. When did you first? When were you first exposed generally to professional wrestling in and you know what what about it kind of uh, appealed to you?
0: You know this is a, another funny. This is a, it's strange what impact my mom has had on my career. This is another funny thing. So it's March. 1985, and there's this thing called WrestleMania that's going to be broadcast on Australian television at like 8.30 at night on Channel 9, which is like, you know, one of the major networks, like being broadcast on, I suppose, you know, ABC in America. So Channel 9 at 8.30 on on, on like a school night. And my mum says to me, she goes, hey, this WrestleMania thing is on tonight. You might enjoy it. Do you want to, st- I'll, I'll let you stay up for an hour and watch it after your bedtime, because bedtime was like 8.30. She goes, I'll let you start for an hour, and we'll, we'll tape it. She bought a, a blank video, a blank VHS tape. She said, I'll tape it for you, but you can watch an hour. I'm like, all right, I'll watch it. I'll watch on. it. You know, Here's this, he's this voice of this guy called Gorilla Monsoon welcoming yeah. me to the World Wrestling Federation and the biggest wrestling extravaganza of all time, WrestleMania from Madison Square Garden, and uh, I'm hooked straight away, and I remember watching – uh, one of the first matches was like this guy called King Kong Bundy, who was the scariest man I'd ever laid eyes on. He was just big, bad butterbean of a man who was said to be four hundred plus pounds, taking on this ripped black guy called Special Delivery Jones. And, right and this guy, King Kong Bundy, to my what was I, ten years old at the time, just ram special Del- delivery jones, beats him with an avalanche in ten seconds? Are you kidding me? Still, I thought this record
1: I children. believe that I believe yeah. that record still holds to this day for yeah. the fastest pin. I
0: thought he killed him. And I remember after that match there was a commercial break and I remember going to the video recorder rewinding it and watching that 10 seconds of this guy King Kong Bundy <laughs> beating special delivery Jones like four or five times before the broadcast came back on after commercial break. That was it man I was hooked after that from from WrestleMania 1 to WrestleMania 10. Was really my my love affair with pro wrestling. I sure. loved Gorilla Monsoon. I loved Jesse Ventura. I loved Bobby the Brain Heenan. I loved Hulk Hogan. I was a Hulkamaniac, but I also loved Rando, R- Randy Savage, Macho Man. You know, Ultimate Warrior, um, Blue Blazer, a Big Boss Man, Ted nah. DiBiase. You know, these are the guys that uh, ravishing Rick Rude. I grew up with these guys. You know, that Mr. Perfect Kurt Hengi. These are the guys that really fired my imagination from when I was, you know, 10 years old to probably when I was 18, 19. And then later on, I'd I'd switch over to WCW. Um, I was a, a staunch WWF guy. Mm-hmm. And then mates and I started watching WCW. One of my mates said, you got to watch WCW. they got this guy called Goldberg. He's amazing. And he's like 50-0 and 0 at the time, undefeated. And I'm like, dude, I don't think he'll be any better than anyone in WWF. they like, You got to watch this Goldberg guy. He's amazing. So I went around over to one of my mates' houses and watched this Goldberg guy. I think that he... He, uh, he was against Disco Inferno. And when he speared Disco Inferno, he almost cut him in half. It was crazy. <laughs> and I was hooked on Goldberg and me and my three best mates were like the biggest Goldberg fans. And we'd book the pay-per-views. We'd watch the weekly shows. And, uh, you know, I so said, WCW made me feel like a kid again for a few years. Um, yeah, so that's how my, my, my love of, of, pro wrestling. And when I got to do, uh, you know, Ultima Lucha, um, mm. In the U.S. for for the L Ray Network and for Mark Burnett promotions, uh, Productions, it uh, was one of the highlights of my career. To finally commentate a professional wrestling show on national, you know, American television and a big one at that, I loved it, every moment of it.
1: Yeah, and I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan of Lucha. So you never necessarily were exposed to maybe your Memphis's Lance Russells, uh, mid South Boyd Pierce, Georgia Championships, oh Gordon Soley. Stop.
0: Australia, we were very limited. There was none of that on TV. I okay. know it was a big deal in America, but you know, I didn't know who Ric Flair was for years. I had no idea. Yeah. And I had no idea how big Ric Flair was or, you know, how the the, the, the reputation of like the, the four horsemen, you know, Arn Anderson, all, all these sort oh. of guys that were NWA guys and, and all that because we just never got it on television in Australia. It just didn't happen. We got WrestleMania. Yeah. And before that in the you know, in the seventies and the early eighties and I was too young to watch it. We'd get Australian wrestling that had, you know, quite a few American names came out. Bill Dundee, compete- Bill uh-huh. superstar
1: Bill Dundee. He went on to right. Memphis you know, to become yeah, big.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those those old days. But I was too young for that. But we sure. never got AWA and MWA and all the all the regional American stuff in Australia. So really for everyone my generation growing up then, um, it was just it was WWF. And it wasn't until sure. later that Really, when I'm, you know, I I knew I, I later found out um, just how big the, the the wrestling territories were in America, but it didn't really apply outside of America too much.
1: Well, yeah, and the whole cable packages, and that's really kind of a common theme. A lot of people, WWF, um, WWE, and F's exposure was so much bigger than. Um, the early NWA, um, Turner Broadcasting and WCW kind of start changing that and the AOL and all that. But yeah, the early on stuff, boy, man, I was just, just raised on that stuff. So I know it had to have been pretty surreal for you, you know, when you actually had a chance to interview, um, Hulk Hogan. Were you in his home? I believe you were in his house,
0: weren't you? Yes, yeah, so that was great. You know, to finally, I'm not. I've, I've interviewed a lot of people, and I'm not really ever often starstruck, to be honest with you. Um, but H- I think Hogan was the first time, maybe actually one of the first times I got really starstruck. Uh, we were in his home, or I think it's his former home now in Clearwater, yeah. Florida. Yeah. Which at a time was one of the most expensive houses in the southern part of the USA. I mean, they built this, you know, they, they built this from scratch. They didn't actually build it themselves. They, they lived on the property in the boathouse, I believe, while the house was being built. And it took a couple of years, maybe took three years to build it. I remember Hogan telling me that the ceiling was 400 year old imported French wood and the place had its own private marina and had all these pools and all these rooms. It was just. The most magnificent house I've ever seen. And he had it on the market because obviously he'd been divorced, you know, yeah. so he was trying to sell it. It was on the market for, I, I guess it might have been like 14, 15 million at the time, which is a steal because the place is actually worth about 25, 30 million. Mm. It's crazy. Wow. So, we, you know, the only furniture left in the house were the two sofas that we were sitting on. Um, so to interview Hogan there at that house and get to spend, you know, not only the, the hour and a half the interview went for, but, no, you know,
1: mind you ladies and gentlemen this man is so committed he bleached <laughs> he bleached his goatee man oh my god never <laughs> do that an with the blonde so, so the goatee night
0: before, that was- the night before I bought some some bleach and I thought you know I'm going to go Hollywood Hulk Hogan It's I'm always when I do interviews Je- Jeffrey I'm looking for an icebreaker, sure. so something I can ask a guest straight off that will break the ice and just get them to chill with me and relax and in the mood where they want to open up so I thought what can I do with Hulk Hogan the guy's heard everything he's heard every question before but I bet if this Aussie you know, dyes his beard and does the black stubble, and does Hollywood Hulk Hogan style. It's just going to be a cool icebreaker. I almost burnt my face off trying to peroxide my own beard in my hotel room <laughs> during, you know, during a hundred degree heat outside. But it worked because it was the first thing that Hogan spoke about during the interview. We had a laugh over it. It really set the tone. It, it to was be-
1: it was beautiful because a he gave you a tip on how to do it right. Put a fan I, next to you, and he also let you know, my friend. You were you were you were on some gimmick infringement, as he said. Right, he he right. was not he was not that was so fantastic. But and you also gave, was, you I'm also right. gave kudos I'm sorry, you also gave kudos to superstar Billy Graham, whose gimmick he infringed, so he can't really talk too much smack about gimmick infringement.
0: Exactly. I was more going for Hollywood Hogan because Superstar Graham was before my time. Although Superstar Billy Graham did end up managing one of my favorite wrestlers who really flew under the radar a lot. The magnificent Don Morocco, all so oh, that he yes. became superstar Don Morocco, and we'll kind of come out to the Jesus Christ superstar theme. And I loved Don Morocco during that period; he was a beast.
1: Well, yeah, I guess let me ask you then. So you're you're um you know your your Mount Rushmore of professional wrestlers, if you will, from from the eras you know from what, all eras that you've stretched. You know what I mean, from old school to I now.
0: Think, well, you know what? We'll, we'll go first name you're going to have on. There's going to be Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan to me is going to be first. Andre the Giant's going to be on there. Stone Cold Steve Austin has to be on there. The Rock has to be on there. And then I would I, w- I would like to see Randy Macho Man Savage on there.
1: Mm, macho you know, Man. Um,
0: I know that a lot of Americans are going to say Ric Flair should be on there. That's cool. But then once again, Ric Flair, for me, I know how uh, legendary he is. But me recognizing who he actually was because, as I said, we weren't exposed to him in Australia. I really didn't understand the legendariness of Ric Flair early right. on. He really didn't have that impact on me that I know he had a lot of your listeners so if I was going to go another name yeah I'll put Ric Flair on there as well because he deserves to be on there but you're asking from my perspective I would go those guys
1: nice very nice yeah I, I always love chopping it up with a you're the kind of good professional wrestling fan man I mean as a part of you know some of the stuff that you have done not just commentating but you've also had a chance like that we've talked about to interviews really the who's who in your the voice versus I mean, like I said, Dana White, I mean you really talk to a lot of people. It's funny, I was watching the I was watching the Steven Seagal interview and he just started out body language wise and his arms were just crossed and you kind of broke the ice with the you knowing about who founded keto. I mean, just like you really kind of proved yourself as a knowledgeable person, and he kind of seemed to loosen up from that. Just talk about talking to some of those guys. What were the, some of the surprises and highlights, and and you know who was kind of a jerk and affirm the fact that you were a jerk, or who surprised you know what was what was it like talking to a lot of those guys?
0: The Steven Seagal experience was incredible from start to finish. I'll tell you about Seagal because he was the most intriguing character of all. Let me state that there are many. People have many opinions on on Segal, on Hulk Hogan, on Dana White, on all these people that, that I've interviewed. But I can only, Jeffrey ever judge someone by how they treat me, and I can't go on hearsay about how they might have treated someone else. So, you know, for, for, uh, Stephen Segal and I got on like a house on fire. We got on really, really well. But he's a guy whose respect I had to earn. And um, first of all, he was the only guest ever that asked to see my questions. Which is a big no-no when you're interviewing someone to never send you questions. But the only way to get cigar was one of many ways we had to, you know, try and get him was well, to send my questions through. So I had to send my questions through and there were a few questions he didn't like that he, he got, he wanted me to take off and he rang me the night before the interview and he said, listen, uh, I don't want to talk about Judo Gene LaBelle allegedly choking me out. It never happened. Gene LaBelle's full of BS. He's a crack. He's a you know, crazy old man and it never happened, but I'm yeah. sick of trying to defend myself. I don't want to talk about it. So take it out. And then he didn't. His...
1: Just to rewind, what are your thoughts yeah. on that? Because that's a, always that. That story is of lore. Not only did he choke him out, he supposedly mm-hmm. defecated himself. What are your thoughts on that? Is it true? What do, you, what do you think?
0: Stevens a big guy, and he's a legitimate martial artist, a legitimate Aikido master. Um, you know, Jean Labelle is a friggin' legend, super strong, awesome. Could probably choke out an ox. I don't know, man. You know, right. I'm thinking right. Stevens adamant it didn't happen, but. You know, yeah, how can you not trust what Gene LaBelle says? He'd have no reason to lie. But who knows? It's one of those things like, you know, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. It's, like, gotcha. it's, it's like Richard Gere with the gerbils. Who knows? Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, right. Go but ahead. You know, Seagal, Seagal calls me the night before and he didn't want to discuss his, his so-called black ops work with the CIA either. And he said to me, Michael, I did black ops work and undercover work for the CIA, but every time I talk about it, I get a call the next day from the CIA saying, Stephen, You know you shouldn't be talking about this stuff. Hmm. So, guys, I don't want to get in trouble. So, anyway, maybe take those questions out too. But the thing was, on the phone, I started – Stephen pressed me with a lot of questions as to how much I knew because I sold this interview trying to get it. It took me a year and a half to get it on the fact that nobody that had ever interviewed him would know as much about martial arts, let alone as much about Aikido as I would. So, when he rang me, he started quizzing me about Moria Oshiba, the founder of Aikido, and about – the martial arts and the founder mm. of other martial arts and all this stuff. And I knew it because I'd been editor of a martial arts magazine for 10 years. I'd been, you know, calling martial arts and writing about it for 20 years. So I knew my stuff back to the front. So I'd actually earned Stephen's respect because the voice versus episode was the only time Stephen Segal has ever done an interview that went for more than 10 minutes. Right. And the interview went for 90 plus minutes, but we strip it back to. 52 minutes for television. So it was a, it was a mega, mega interview. And a lot of it ended up on the cutting room floor because we couldn't fit it in. So anyway, uh, we're filming in Scottsdale, Arizona, in the, the penthouse suite of this, uh, beautiful resort. And, uh, Seagal rocks up in this SUV. And, uh, we are told that the SUV has, uh, bulletproof windows and the, the, the doors and the frame can sustain the force of an RPG. Okay. Uh, a rocket propelled g- grenade. And in the case of a chemical attack, the car can be hermetically sealed. So you are sealed inside safe from a gas or chemical attack. Wow. So. This is my introduction to Steven Seagal.
1: <laughs> well, even one of your other interview subjects, Frank Dukes, who was the inspiration for Bloodsport and quite possibly the Ultimate Fighting Championship, um, there's a conversation we had there that he, uh, he he can vouch for that that this you know this man is, is licensed and not just your regular firearms. Like he's there's a reason why he's armed to well, the teeth.
0: Let me say that so Seagal gets upstairs to our interview area and he's big. Sigal's six five, he's thick. You know, he's a big big guy, not fat. He's just thick. Yeah. Thick guy, 6'5, big boy. And he gets in there and he, he, he immediately puts on his director's hat. Now, mind you, if, if no one knows, to set up a, to do a TV set, like for the voice verses, takes like three or four hours for the crew to set up and light and rig and all that. Seagal comes in and he's like, who's in charge here? And our, our EP, Daryl, the late Daryl Ewalt comes over and says, Mr. Seagal, I'm in charge on the EP. He goes, this won't work, Daryl. These lights are too high. These lights are too low. You've got to shadow my face, change this, change that. So our guys are going to change the whole set because Segal thought he was director of photography. Then the uh, the sound guy is micing us up, and he mics up Stephen, and he comes over to me, and he goes, Voice, he goes, "Uh, Do you know what Stephen's wearing? I go, Yeah, dude, I I can see him. He's wearing a black shirt, black pants. He goes, No, under his shirt, he's wearing a bulletproof vest. I go, What? He goes, Yeah, under his shirt, Stephen's got on a bulletproof vest. So that was weird. Then Stephen had a, a had a bum bag, a fanny pack, and uh, it's in shot. So Daryl goes to pick it up to move it. And as he picks it up, Stephen goes, Sir, be very, very careful. Do not drop that bag. There are many dangerous things in there that could kill us all. And Daryl comes over to him and he goes, Mikey, he's got like five handguns in his fanny pack. Wow. So, you know, from Stephen gave a great interview, but... As you said, the body language was just incredible. He's looking off camera a lot. He's sniffing a lot. and Very, very paranoid body language, but such a gripping, intriguing interview because you don't know whether it's the truth, whether it's BS, but it's all just so spectacular. And if you haven't seen it, check it out on YouTube. It's worth watching. And the whole day, the whole experience with Stephen was just, man, I, I could write a book on it. I might one day, you know, it was great.
1: Well, we're going to get to your book, my friend. But yeah, I mean, you, you, I, I commend you, man, because you just you' your your cojones in the level of questions. Like you're talking to Ho and you're like, you're talking about the Sheikh. He's like, is it true that the Sheikh used to stand on his hand and do rails of cocaine? And what, what's he going to say? Yes,
0: that's exactly
1: what he. I mean, you've I gotta
0: just say, I've always believed, Jeffrey, that when you're doing interviews, you've got to, uh, you've a you've got to humble yourself to your guest. Okay, you can't overpower your guest. And you've got to respect that your guest is the star of the show. But also, B, it's your show. It's your interview. Take control of the interview. Take the interview where you want it to go. Yes. And if you see a nice tangent it can go on, be prepared to go on a tangent and get off page. And the only way you can do that is by listening to your guest. The art of the interview is the art of listening, okay? Don't ask a question and immediately look at your notes and have the next question in mind and miss what your guest is saying because sure. – In what they're saying, they might give you a little nugget you can branch off on, but you've got to ask some of the harder questions and some of the questions they just don't answer. Like with Hogan, I asked him about, you know, the, 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 the blood, the cutting. In WWF, which is a taboo subject that ninety nine percent of wrestlers will not tell you about, how they deliberately cut themselves. Yeah, he, thought, se- like, he know, seemed like, very
1: hesitant at explaining his gigging. I mean, we all know it now, but he still had that old school in him he where he was. was until,
0: yeah. I, until I got him to open up, and then he's like, he explained it. He's like, "Yeah, man, I used to hold my razor blade in my lip between my teeth,
1: which between is crazy. my teeth, and
0: my lips." And he goes, sometimes I forget it was there. I go out drinking, I go out eating and partying and the razor blade would still be there. So to get him to open up about that, to open up again about the Iron Sheik getting pulled over with, you know, marijuana or cocaine in his car, to open up about, you know, the Andre the Giant story and set the record straight on Andre's apparent, you know, racist little tiff he had with Bad News Brown and just to set the stuff history straight. Was, was, was amazing and you know same when i interviewed stone cold steve austin the way stone cold opened up and some of the stories he told and i think he was relieved to finally get his chance to have the time frame to tell these stories uh you know he turned around at the end and said that's the the best damn interview i've, I've ever done and in my i heard life. him say that and you yeah. know
1: in the and I, I don't know i'm just a geek and i pay attention to these things like immediately i thought it was awesome you had the cooler of beer there or uh, you know the beer just sit right there, and he's just like, I gotta go to the gym later, blah blah blah. But sure, shit, and later on he had a beer in his hand, which was just fantastic.
0: And that's that's and from that point, I really knew that he was really loose, really he was enjoying himself. And and again, the Stone Cold interview, it went for about 75, 80 minutes, and you only see 52 minutes of it on the final broadcast. But man, I can't, I I cannot speak highly enough about Stone Cold. I love that guy. He's just one of the most awesome human beings I've ever met, and just he's 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 amazing. You can talking to him and talking to him off air as well. Uh, We've chatted several times on the phone and just chewed the fat. You can see how he became such a star and so successful because his work ethic is just unbelievable. He's, He grinds the fingers to the bone. He's willing to humble himself and learn off other people to improve himself. It really is inspirational the way that Stone Cold dedicates himself to whatever he does.
1: Well, again, check out all of these interviews, ladies and gentlemen, the the voice versus, but you're right, Stone Cold, and you talk about humbling himself, you know, his dedication to what he was doing, you know, the the part in the interview where he was talking about I was basically living off tuna and potatoes. I ran out of tuna and I was just basically eating potatoes. I mean, that's, you just don't see that kind of dedication to one's craft very often, and that's it's it's beyond and commendable. And it's like you said, it's how yeah, he became a huge star.
0: Nine hundred and ninety-nine out of a thousand people would have quit, but the guy's leaving off potatoes—not even cooked potatoes. He's right. he's got a pocket knife and he's cutting raw potatoes to eat while he's on the road trying to make a name for himself. I mean, you know, he's just—he really is a, just a great guy, and uh, I, I, I can never say a bad word about him. He's awesome.
1: Yeah, and he definitely knows the, the business in and out. You know, before we hop off of the the voice versus, another, like I said, individual you interviewed was Frank Dukes. If anybody doesn't know him, he's very old school, very tried-and-true martial artist, is the inspiration for the film Bloodsport, um, the kumite and all that kind of backstory. There was a question you asked, my friend, and again, this was just like a testament to your cojones, and you were speaking about his black ops, possible black ops works as well. And you 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 asked it. You're like, sir, have you have you ever killed somebody? And he said to you, and I'm curious how you took this response. It was, I don't want to answer that question. Not only do I don't want to answer it. He's like, it's not a civilized question. What did you take that to mean? Were you it obviously didn't throw the interview off because he still was very open and emotional with you. What what were your thoughts on his response to that question?
0: You see, I had read Frank Duke's book, which not a lot of people have read. It was a book that he wrote uh, that was published by Harper Collins in I think the, the early 1990s. So I was a major publisher and it was a big hardback book. Um, and I'd read it from cover to cover. And it reads like a novel. It's, it's, it's meant to be his biography about his black ops CIA work, but it really reads like a Bourne novel. It's amazing if you can get a hold of it. It's very rare. So I'd read it. So I knew from reading that that I, I believe in the book. Now, I, man, it's been years since I read it, but I believe in the book he'd said or alluded to the fact that he he'd killed people, you know, in his, in his special ops work. So I came out flat out and asked it during the interview. Um, him not answering it, I believe was, um, yeah. you know, his, his way of politely saying, yeah, I, 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 I have, you know, injured people or maybe he has killed someone, but he didn't want to portray that sort of aspect about himself on national television. I can get that, but I thought it made for a more, a more interesting answer. Cause like it, like I said, if he'd said yes to it, it would have just, you know, gone on to the next question. But the fact that he said what he did has got someone like you talking about it. It's <laughs> later. It with you after he says it. It's like, Wow, did he or didn't he? What a cool answer. What's his body language? What's his tone? What's his movement? You well, know even,
1: even the true or false when you asked him, Are you still employed by the CIA? And he's just right, like mm, that's right. a good question. it was just like, Yeah, it definitely deepened the intrigue for sure.
0: Right. 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 So Frank, you know, Frank was a uh, like Segal, he was just an intriguing character to talk to. He's a guy who gets a lot of flack from people um, because people go, well, the kumite was all make believe and blood sport was make believe. But hey, you gotta remember, man, in, the, in the 1970s, sparring at any dojo you went to was kumite style. It was full on. You, you beat the other guy to crap. And then they, 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 most the of them didn't have jigsaw mats or polished floorboards. They are on concrete floors. And these guys were raw. It's like, okay, you fight him, you're sparring, go and you just beat the crap out of each other. And so, why would you not believe that they had tournaments in the 70s where it was called a Kuomintang? A kumite means, you know, fight. And they just let them go at it like they do in the UFC these days, but pretty much just even with, with less rules than in the UFC. I mean, it, to me, it's totally believable, given the time frame was in the 1970s or the early 1980s, whatever it was. Of course, this stuff was happening all over the world. Man, it's still it still happens today. Yeah, you know, you, you you go to a Muay Thai camp, go to a Muay Thai camp in Thailand, and go watch them spar. You know what? Even yeah, more, exactly. go to Holland. Yep. Go ask Alastair Overeem or ask Bader Hari or Tyrone Spong or Gokan Saki or Melbourne Manoff what the kickboxing sparring is like in Holland, and they will tell you it is harder than being in a fight because they, even though they're sparring friends and training partners, they go into the kill each other. So are you telling me you can't believe that this guy in the 70s was competing in a... Of course he was. And, of course, Hollywood dressed it up, okay, with the platform and the the names of the styles and the traditional uniforms and all that. They dressed it up for Hollywood. But what it's based on is real, okay? It's like, that'd be like watching Here Comes the Boom and saying, oh, well, that's not a, a, a real indication of a UFC fight. Of course they dressed up, here comes the boom. Of course they dress up Rocky Balboa's fights. It's Hollywood. But the stuff it's based on is real. So Frank Dukes did compete in full contact events. You can call them kumites. You can call them no holds barred. You just call it full contact events. It's what it was. For that day and age, I don't know why anyone would disbelieve him.
1: Yeah, I mean, like you said, I mean... (laughs) I haven't read that book, but as you said, you read it in two days, so it seems like it's a pretty fascinating read. And he just seems like a very fascinating guy. Like he's he's done a little bit of everything, and he even spoke more forthrightly than I thought he would about his. Uh, his work with the United States government, but uh, again, ladies and gentlemen, check out the voice verses. you can find most of those anywhere dana white tito ortiz he's he 's got uh, Joe Rogan as well and you 've also been on joe rogan 's podcast as well. Uh, moving on before I let you go, my man you know the world of mixed martial arts obviously you announced for one you're a huge fan um, you know on this on this show, my first guest was our friend Pat Militich and i 've interviewed him several times Steven Wonderboy boss and i 've asked and around when I first interviewed Pat. I called it the McGregor effect, if you will, and its effect on the sport. And sure enough, since that's happened, you know, he hasn't even defended his belt. He got one belt stripped. He went and fought boxing. Dan Henderson's fighting for the title. You know, the, there's just nothing with the rankings, it seems like. And you have a lot of people jumping ship to Bellator. What? Uh, not that it's all about UFC, but what do you see, because they are kind of the flagship brand, what do you see going on with the UFC and fighters jumping ship and... Stars going away, no more Ronda right now or Anderson, and they really have to rebuild stars. And on top of that, the McGregor effect. What are your thoughts on the brand on, on mixed martial arts right now, my friend? Spadu-
0: I really think yeah. I really think UFC is sort of in this uh, lim, um I call it limbo period. They're in, they're in a change, a period of change. Um, all right, we'll go back and give it another professional wrestling comparison. I'll compare it to the time when, let's say, uh, WWF had to get out of the Bret Hart, Diesel era of like WrestleMania 11. Yes,
1: stuff. dude. Same metaphor and- I've used. I've used the same exactly. thing where they had to rebuild Stone Cold right, and The Bret- Rock. Yeah.
0: Attitude era, the Stone Cold era, the Degeneration X era. Yep. So those few years where Bret Hart took the took the torch, you know, for a couple of years, he was the champion, and then Diesel held it briefly after that. Um, that was sort of like a a WWF going away from Hulk Hogan. The old Hulk Hogan, Hulkamania days were over but they weren't at the Attitude Era, Degeneration X era, which would probably end up being bigger than Hulkamania. They were in between. So I see UFC in that same era at the moment where the Ronda, Anderson days, you know, GSP even days are are sort of behind them now, Mm -hmm. and they're building all these new stars, guys we aren't too familiar with but are going to get there. You know, you've seen people like Brian Ortega putting on a great performance on the weekend. So they're building new, exciting stars, but it's going to take them a couple of more years for these stars to come to fruition and and star level maturity. So that's really where I think UFC is at the moment. They're in that same era WWF was in when Hulkamania ended, and then you know before uh, Stone Cold and Attitude Era and Degeneration X began.
1: Well, and there's always and obviously there's always room to build new stars as we've seen. But what are you what are your thoughts on the whole? Again, the whole ranking system, and almost with wrestling, the belts are just they change hands so much they almost don't mean anything I mean obviously it's different in mixed martial arts, but again you're you're Dan Henderson fighting for the title again, this is a while ago, Shale son and losing to Anderson and then fighting for John Jones for the title
0: uh, any time you fight for a title you've got to qualify for it it's got to be you got to, the title has to be sacred you know for me growing up with w w f that heavyweight championship was always just so sacred. Yeah. And you know, when they, when they split it and they had like the, the world championship and the heavyweight championship, to me, it made no sense. I like just one championship belt, one mm. belt above all others that everyone aspires to. That's the pinnacle. Of, you know, of sports entertainment. It's the same in mixed martial arts. I like one belt. I've never liked interims. I don't understand interims. I think they're silly. In the Having yeah. someone to be an interim champion, it's ridiculous. Even Rob Whitaker, I mean, he's an Aussie. I love Rob. He's fantastic. But how are you champion now when you've never fought for the championship belt? Just put it down as a vacant <clears throat> title. You know, when Ronda came to UFC and they gave her the championship belt after she came from Strike Force, why? Right. Call it a vacant title, and let her compete against whoever it was, I can't remember, let it compete for it and win the title.
1: Me you know,
0: sure, in, yeah. are ridiculous, they water it down, they make it seem like the only important thing is a title, whereas what they should focus on more is saying, hey, this fight is a title contention fight. If Chael Sonnen beats, uh, I don't know, for argument's sake, like Michael Bisping in this contest, whoever wins this one fights the champion, okay? That's the way it should be. That's the way one championship's doing it, and I like it. We, we're doing like, hey, you know what? Whoever wins this one gets a crack at the belt next time, mm. you know. And and you put a lot of you put a lot of uh, a lot of force behind the championship, not watering it down and not polluting it. And I think UFC needs to go back to making that belt something really, really sacred and more, you know, and, mm. and more of an issue about people qualifying for it and the ranking system. You know, it's a, it's a little flawed as well, and it might look good on TV or everything, but if it doesn't play out properly. You know, what, what's even the point of having it? you are to use it. You can't have your number 10 guy fighting your number one guy yeah. for the championship when number 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 exactly. are also there and are willing to fight. Just because you can't negotiate with 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, why should number 10 get the crack? You know, just some of it doesn't make sense.
1: Yeah, and they're obviously going for you know pay per view buys and you know fan fights right. as opposed. I mean, you know, and they're you know I've talked to you know Den Thomas, Tyron Woodley's trainer, and Amanda New with their pad as well, Wonderboy as well. There has to be a balance, you know. I don't mind some fan fights coming from that WWE background, but please don't stop. Please stop compromising uh, the, the belt, as it were. Like I said, it it really uh, it really takes an emphasis a, a, away a lot from the belt.
0: There's a lot of guys that just a lot of us don't know that we're seeing on the UFC roster at the moment but we've just got to be really patient. You see UFC's got matchmaker Mick Maynard, and Mick Maynard is a genius when it comes to matchmaking. I think UFC signing him up, you know, was, was a brilliant move, and this is all part of Mick's plan. I can see it that he's bringing this talent that we've seen in, you know, Legacy Fighting Alliance and CES and a lot of the the, the smaller promotions bringing them to UFC putting them on TV slowly but surely, getting them built up and building their experience, and he's hoping they'll pay dividends in a couple of years' time. So like I said, we've got to have a bit of faith in someone like Mick Maynard that he knows what he's doing, and they're in that transition period, and in two years' time, we'll be talking about Brian Ortega, as big a name as Nick Diaz, you know, stuff like that.
1: Yeah, and I, and I love that, honestly. I mean, I love that to see that ebb and flow, the competition. Um, I really miss, you know, even going back to the Pride days, you know. Um, I wish you could still have something like that there. But, you know, I don't want to keep you too much longer, man. I'll just kind of break this down. You obviously are a huge boxing fan. I'm going to run through this somewhat fast. MMA, you, you've you been there. You've seen the who's who for quite a while now. Mount Rushmore, my friend, of, of the MMA world, not just UFC, um, you know, go back. Go back to Bruce Lee if you need to. Who, who, Who's your Mount Rushmore?
0: Well, you know what? And he can
1: expand it a couple. I okay. Mount Rushmore's not a little
0: bit. I'm going to put Bruce Lee on there because for many people, he is the original exposure to mixed martial arts, especially in a movie like uh, uh, um, uh, Enter the Dragon, where you see him, you know, in the MMA-style gloves doing the arm bars and, and that on, 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 I think it was Sammo Hung's character, played by Sammo Hung, you know, you, you see him using the mixed martial arts. I've so got to put Bruce Lee on there. You've got to put Muhammad Ali on there because mm-hmm. Muhammad Ali was a lot of people's exposure simply to the fight game. And then when he fought Inoki, it really was a worldwide exposure almost to what would almost qualify as one of the very first mixed martial arts matches.
1: Would you think that um, was a shoot?
0: Four yeah. No, well, no, 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 no. T- let me tell you a story here. Um, a couple of years ago in Vegas... I'm, I'm, I'm hanging out with Michael Jai White. Uh, you know Michael Jai White, among many other roles, played yeah. the role of Mike Tyson yeah. on HBO's yeah. film Tyson. So I'm hanging out with with Michael Jai White. We're walking through the Bellagio, and he sees this guy he knows, this old guy. Guy's name is um, – I'm going to get his last name wrong. It's Gene, I think, Kilroy, Gene Kilroy. Ends up this guy used to be Muhammad Ali's business manager. So he was like Ali's best mate. And, you know, now he's like 80 years old or whatever, but he's a legend in Vegas, and I met him. Michael's talking to him. And so I say to him, hey, were you there when Ali fought Inoki at the Budokan? And he goes, let me tell you about that. He goes, not a lot of people know this. He goes, Ali's legs took so much punishment, so much punishment that we had to ice his legs straight away out the back and do – I forgot what it was, Jeffrey, or something else they had to do to his legs um, – Actually, maybe they had to rush him to the hospital straight away or something or another. Either they had to get the doctors to him at the back straight away or take him to the hospital straight away or Ali would have lost his leg or legs. Whoa. This is coming from the mouth of Ali's business manager. I swear to you. So I'd never heard that before. So if you're asking me if Ali versus Anoki was a work, it could not have been a work if Ali's legs generally took that much damage. Wow. So again... I put Ali on that on that Mount Rushmore, and then we're going to get into the the pioneer days. Obviously, first name has to be there. Hoist Gracie, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe Randy Couture has to be there as well. These guys were game changers in in the early days. Uh, Fedor Emelianenko Emilian, for me needs to be there as well. Uh, a guy like Kazushi Sakuraba deserves to be mm-hmm. there as well. Uh, he only just got inducted into the UFC Hall of Fame, and people just a lot of the newbies don't understand just what a big deal and how awesome Saka Bravo was in his day, you really? know, and what an influencing game changer he was. Uh, the you know, killer. And, and <laughs> the grace. And then I think you got guys like Chuck Liddell and Tito Ortiz that really put UFC on their back during a day when it couldn't get sanctioned in every state and really, you know, h- helped to make it as big as it was along with Forrest and, and Bonner as well. They deserve yep. a place on your Mount Rushmore just for that. Ultimate Fighter season one finale uh, that really launched UFC into the mainstream. So they're the guys that I would sort of figure would be on a, a Mount Rushmore of MMA.
1: Nice, yeah. That, that, that rounds out. That rounds out pretty close to mine. I'd have to throw in maybe maybe an Anderson in there just because he was, you know, such a beast. And you know, but you know, it's a very subjective thing. And so boxing. Obviously, you're a boxing fan as well. And that's you know, what, what are your thoughts too, man? The boxing game. Eh, Give me your thoughts. Professional wrestling obviously is no more. The professional wrestling we knew as a kid. kayfabe, is no more. Is, is, is MMA the new professional wrestling? A, and, uh, what do you, what's your boxing, uh, Mount Rushmore going back? You can mix uh, weights I think, and everything.
0: I think MMA is the new professional wrestling for, for fans. I, I've seen a lot of fans both in the USA, uh, going to UFC expo and, uh, having attended Strike Force events in the past and, you know, throughout Asia and, uh, and Dream and Dynamite and now with one championship and seeing the merchandise they sell, the programs they sell, the way they market the fans, uh, market the, the the athletes to the fans as well. And, and and do the fan interaction stuff and and um make the make the fighters and the athletes seem larger than life, which is the way that you and I used to view Hogan and Rude and Warrior and yes. Savage back in the day, you know. So I, I see this now at one championship. I see us go to countries like Myanmar or countries like. Uh, the Philippines, where mixed martial arts is still relatively new, and these guys are walking down the street and people are looking at them in awe because they've seen them on, on, their, on their television at night time, You know, in Myanmar, where Ong Lan Sung is just mobbed, and you know, can pick up the phone and get a sit down with the, the the first, you know, the, the 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 whatever you call it, the president of, of Myanmar. You know, uh, just these, these these are just huge pop wow. culture figures, which I think is what what what, what we are seeing these athletes become now, are pop culture figures. In mixed martial arts, which is the was previously the the vestige of, of pro wrestling. Um, so I, I do agree with you that I think in a way, as far as a fan can, is concerned, you can follow mixed martial arts to a point now, as you used to be able to follow WWF back in our days. Um, as for a boxing Mount Mount Rushmore, uh, you know you've got to go uh, people that I'd never saw, but you've got to go just because you know the the history of them, like Sugar Ray Robinson. There you Rob- go, <laughs> Rocky Marcano you got to go those guys. You've got to go Ali. You cannot not go Ali. Um, you got to go um, – uh, man, there's so, yeah, there's so many. Names going through my head, but you don't want to list everyone. No, 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 trying, no. Yeah, exactly. You're trying to be very selective. I go Sugar Ray Leonard. Um, you know, I, I go someone like uh, probably Floyd Mayweather. you are got to put Floyd on there, of course. Uh, maybe, maybe someone like Manny Pacquiao. I think Sweet Pea Purnell Whitaker was maybe one of the most talented boxers of all time, but maybe not deserving of a a Mount Rushmore. But, you know, you talk about talent and you list so many names throughout history. You know, Tyson, obviously, for what he did to boxing with his pay-per-view figures and the the popularity has to go on a Mount Rushmore. But there's so many talented people throughout history like, you know George Foreman and Joe Frazier and Ken Norton, Sweet Pea Pernell Whitaker and oh, Oscar man. De La Hoya and uh, and and, uh, and Chavez and 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 then you go you know, go down the line to the to to Klitschko brothers and the modern day guys like you know GGG and uh, and and Canelo and of course Lomachenko, Lomachenko and Lomachenko my brilliant. goodness I, I commentated that guy to gold in Beijing you know I commentated his first ever big thing he did and I knew there and then that he was going to be the next big star and now we're seeing it what uh, nine years later. You know, there's so many great names in boxing out there in the world. That said, not as many big profile names as there were 15, 20 years ago where you could list off easily. You could walk down the street and the average man could probably back then uh, list at least five to ten boxers. That he knew off the top of his head that were current.
1: Yeah. Oh, I mean, like you just said, like, you know, uh, Leonard. I mean, obviously it was a Leonard, Hearns, Hagler, and even in the heavyweights, it was multiple well, weight divisions. And like you said, said- it, and that's so true. Same with, same with UFC and mixed martial arts, I see, and it's changing, but the stars, I mean, back in the day, man, it was, See, and that, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a matter of even kayfabe being removed with boxing. Boxing has just changed. But I mean, you know what I mean? Boxing is still boxing, but we just don't see those stars coming up in different divisions you like that.
0: Ask the, now, I'm talking the average man on the street. The average man on the street. If you ask him the question, say, name me five current active boxers, okay? And not, not, not a boxer his family might know or, or some right, local right. boxer. With solid name. I'm selling good quality profile boxers. He's going to say Mayweather straight up. He's going to say Pacquiao straight up, okay? Man on the street will say it. Then I believe he starts to struggle. Man on the street's not going to know who Joshua is, not going to know who Parker is. Man on the street's not going to know who Golovkin is, not going to know who Canelo is, not going to know who Lomachenko is. They just don't know. They yeah. won't know.
1: Even the heavyweights. I mean, who is the heavyweight champion right now? That's ridiculous.
0: Right. You know, they're not <laughs> going to know Parker from Joshua, uh, from, uh, the New Zealand guy to, to Anthony Joshua to Deontay Wilder. They're not going to know these names. So that's what I'm saying is that big Dante names Wilder, aren't there right. anymore. Yeah. And boxing also finds itself in a state where it needs to, to reestablish itself. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a difference between famous and, and pop culture famous. And, uh, uh um, what's his name? Uh, uh, David uh, Meltzer, mm-hmm. recently I saw a tweet that he did arguing with people because Meltzer listed Hogan – I'm sort of paraphrasing here a bit, but I believe he listed Hogan, The Rock, as like um, wrestlers that were pop culture stars and didn't rate Ric Flair as a pop culture star. And people started to bag him out and debate and saying, how do you not put Ric Flair there? Ric Flair so famous. And I agree with Meltzer. Yeah, Ric Flair's mega famous, but he's not pop culture famous. It's almost okay. what you
1: just explained earlier as to why you right. didn't know who you, he was for the longest.
0: Okay, again, if you go to the average person on the street, average person, okay, if I'm walking down, I'll, I'll even do it in Vegas. I'll walk down the strip in Vegas and I'll ask 100 people, do you know Hulk Hogan? I guarantee you 99 out of 100, possibly 100 out of 100 will say yes. <laughs> yeah. If yeah. I say, do you know who Ric Flair is? I'll say out of a hundred, depending if it's an older, younger, but we're mixing up the demographic. I'll say maybe 65 to 70 are going to know Ric Flair. Hmm. Okay. If you say who's The Rock, 100%, 99, 100% are going to know who The Rock is. There's a difference. Now, I'm not saying Flair's not famous because even 75 out of 100 makes you bloody famous. Right, right. Okay. But he's not transcended to pop culture famous, which someone like Hogan, yeah. which someone like The Rock has. He's you know, not, yeah,
1: I, he's he's not Coca Cola, that's for sure. No, he he's just,
0: not Coca Cola. He, yeah. he's not exactly. You know, he's not. So you know, and, and again, it's I always put these debates down to man in the street. Would the man in the street know who this person is? Right. They don't know who Golovkin is. They don't know who Canelo is. They don't know who Lomachenko is. Are those guys freaking awesome? Yes. Are they popular? Yes. Are they man in the street popular? No. That's just the way it is.
1: Yeah, and that's true. I mean, we could get into, like, why that is different, like Sugar Ray Leonard. I mean, he was, like, one of the golden boys coming off the Olympics. There was so much stuff that propelled him in boxing at that time. But, yeah, very fascinating. But also,
0: Jeff, also back then, remember, boxing was treated in the mainstream a lot better. You'd see guys like Sugar Ray in movie parts, in, in mainstream TV roles, doing mainstream commercials uh doing appearances red carpets you'd see them on talk shows back in the day now you don't see any of these guys on talk shows or doing red carpets at you know at awards nights or anything like that you just don't see it they're not embraced like they used to be 20 or 30 years ago
1: yeah the game has definitely changed and i'm gonna add two more things i'm gonna let you slide and this is an easy segue into one of these last questions What role do you feel, in in your opinion, sir, on on concussions and CTE, uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, what do you feel that role in the PR, the negative PR that's played on combat sports, football, et cetera, but particularly how it's affecting boxing and uh, MMA?
0: I think a lot, but I think it's also very misunderstood. Our our sport, when I say our sport, I'll I'll umbrella all combat sports, but I'll specifically throw an umbrella over, over mixed martial arts. Is very misunderstood. When I tell people what I do for a job, people go, "What do you do?" And I'm a sports broadcaster. What sport? And I'll say mixed martial arts, or I'll say I'll just say UFC because most people know know it as UFC, you know. Right. Um, and they go, "Oh, too violent for me." I go, "What do you What do you watch? What, what sports do you like?" I oh, like football, Aussie rules football. All right. Now, if you've never seen Aussie rules football, you're allowed to do this. You can take a 20 meter run up at full blast towards a guy whose back is turned to you. This guy doesn't know you're running at him from behind. You can then leap onto his back, dig your knee into his spine, so you climb on him with your knee dug into his spine and catch the ball, okay? (laughs) You can also run up and down the field with no padding. There's no padding. The only padding you have is a mouth guard, okay? And you can grab a guy and wrench tackle him to the ground, slam him down onto the ground, okay? You can do these things in Australian rules football. Much, much, much more violent and impactful and injury-prone sport than mixed martial arts where they're professionals, where they're trained to defend against all these sorts of attacks and they can see the attacks, but mixed martial arts is perceived as a more dangerous sport. Same with rugby. Rugby can be so dangerous, the guys have to wear masking tape on their ears to hold their ears on their heads and they get ripped off. Okay? But main, mainstream acceptance, but people will go, oh, mixed martial arts, UFC, too violent for me. Oh, that's that no rules stuff, right? No, they're frigging.
1: Yeah, exactly. Ignorance Ooh, is bliss. You're know, right. They
0: can do anything, right? They can do anything. No, they can't do anything.
1: Yeah. But
0: it's, it's it's people not educated, not knowing, and that stems from the early days where it was, you know, marketers no holds barred, anything right. goes in cage and. You know, it's just it's just the way it is. Um, you either try and explain it to everyone, or you just go, eh, oh, <laughs> right. no. Well, worries. yeah, you I definitely. Try, I never try. I never try and force it on anyone. Everyone has their own likings and each to their own.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, you you've been around, you know, way more than I have. I mean, these are some of the most highly trained, most disciplined people in the world. And if anybody knows anything about martial arts, true martial artists, that's that the last thing they are. Is You know, I mean, of course you have your, like you were talking to Steven Seagal, you were distinguishing between martial arts and fighters. You have fighters out there, you got your knuckleheads, but you know, most of your top level martial artists are some of the most zen, kickback, chill people you could ever meet.
0: Of course, of course, you know, and it's, uh, you know, I I would say probably um, in the UFC, I'd say the ratio is a little, a little less. It's probably, you you know, still most of them are martial artists, but the ratio might be 60-40, somewhere like one championship. Where you're digging into that Asian martial arts space, uh, the percentage is way up there. It's like 99 to 1 on, you know, it's so, they're, they're so focused on the respect factor. There's no trash talking aloud. Um, there's no throwing bottles, throwing monster energy drinks. There's no pushing and shoving. Uh, there's no walking around with hoodies on and dark glasses with your, with your earplugs in and, you know, the brooding characters. Uh, everyone's instilled a, Martial arts, Budo spirit into them, which I, which I really like, because I think that's what the, the sport is really about, and I, I'm a little disappointed that a lot of the UFC stuff and the Bellator stuff has had to go the way. Of trash talking, very mm. obvious, tacky trash talking from people who don't know how to trash talk, you know. Um, it, it just it look it looks bad, it looks tacky. So, um,
1: interesting. I mean, I find that interesting, and that's and I obviously respect that. So, you you don't feel there's any kind of role? I mean, you look at like your old school, Mister International, Shoney Carter. I mean, it's kind of theatrical. I mean, do you feel there's any kind of role in, um, that element, if you will, the Ma- yeah, yeah. McGregor effect. Yeah.
0: If you know how to do it and you know how to sell it, like Charles Sonnen knows how to do it, knows how to sell it, fits him with his persona. Nick Diaz, I may not necessarily like the persona of Nick Diaz. They're always getting high, flipping the finger, F you, F you, F you, don't give an F about anyone else but himself type of thing, but that makes his character. That's him. That's Nick. So it works for him. Okay? The trash talking I thought that Joanna did before her her fight with Rose It's not her. It doesn't suit her. It's not her character. You come off looking like a like a like a like a like an idiot, you know. Well, so, and
1: especially when you get the result like she got, that well, does definitely. You
0: know, so it depends who's doing it. I just I'm not a huge fan of guys just doing it just because they think that's what it takes to sell pay-per-views. And if it's if that's what it sells, what sells TV? What sort of market are we catering for? What sort of brain-dead, beer-swilling? Idiots, are we marketing? Are we, are we marketing this sport to? On one hand, we'll go out there and try and petition the sport to major networks, saying it's a very safe sport, it's a very popular sport, it's a well, you know, these are well-respected athletes. Okay, we're trying to get the tr- contracts from the likes of, you know, Fox Sports and that. But on the other hand, we'll do press conferences, we'll let them talk trash and push and shove and hit each other. I mean, you're contradicting yourself, really. What sort of market do you want to appeal to? That's it's it's yeah. It's a whole whole another point of discussion. We can yeah. Be to try, well, you know? it seems
1: to be so many like mixed signals. You know, you see your Connor yeah. who's gone and made millions and hundreds of millions You know, doing what he did based off of basically. Not that he didn't back it up, but he's yeah. got so much that element to his thing. But again, the backing it up really helps. But um. All right, my man, we'll check this out before I let you slide. We talked about this when I was um, when you were on our show with uh, UFC Hall of Famer and Pat Millett, just the Conspiracy Farm. I know. Shout out any um, social networking stuff where we can track you down, as well as your book, and tell me a little bit about your book before I let you go. Know thyself, man. I, I, just break that off for me if you don't mind, and where the, the impetus was for that.
0: Yeah, so uh, you know, Pat Millicent and I are both uh, both Freemasons, and uh, we were both been uh, masters of the lodge, which means we were in charge of our respective lodge. Mine was in Las Vegas last year and Pat's was in Bettendorf, Iowa. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote the book Know Thyself because I, over my years of being a Freemason, Freemasonry is a, a system of self-improvement. It's like doing martial arts or yoga or higher education, doing extracurricular schooling, uh, doing, you know, going to the gym, uh, meditation. People are always looking for avenues to improve themselves and, and improve themselves as a person. And Freemasonry is another avenue, a time-tested and tried and true avenue to improve yourself and all these symbols that we use in freemasonry these important lessons we teach i thought well these lessons should be out there for everyone to be able to learn uh not just behind the closed doors of freemasonry uh so i i i wrote the book and uh put the life lessons into there and the the, the feedback has been outstanding and it reached the best sellers list on on amazon and it's still selling very very well so if anyone wants to check it out go to amazon.com type uh, know thyself using the symbols of Freemasonry to improve your life. It's something I'm very passionate about, and you know, I'm, 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 I'm getting uh, back into my Freemasonry now that I'm resettled in Australia as well. And uh, you know, if anyone's interested, uh, feel free to drop me a line on social media or drop Pout Military a line on social media, and we're happily to discuss Freemasonry and its benefits. And if anyone wants to join, we can uh, steer you in the right direction.
1: And where can we find that social media for you, sir? Uh, Twitter? What's your?
0: Yeah, so Twitter's the best one. Just add me on Twitter, at Chevello Voice. And uh, message me on Twitter. Follow me on there. On Facebook, it's Michael Chevello MMA. Um, under that one on Facebook now. And, um, mate, I've got to say, Jeff, it has been an absolute pleasure to finally sit down with you yeah. and speak to you and have this chat, mate. It's great. And uh, I look forward to coming back on in the future, buddy.
1: Absolutely. And thank you so much for your time. Obviously, don't hang up quite yet because I want to ask you something off air. But thank you. I know you're in Australia making some time adjustments. And we, you know, a lot of us miss you here, man. Obviously, our boy, Pat Militich. Anything you want to say to our brother from Another Mother?
0: No, I'm not going to say anything to him. I miss him so much. I want you to wrap your arms around him, give him a big kiss from me, and say that's from Chavella.
1: I will do that, man. Like I said, I just had to move back down here to St. Louis and left him. And you know, we're not going anywhere because uh, we got we got a nice little tag team going. But again, thank you so much, Michael, and uh, continued success in one championship, ladies and gentlemen. They are killing it, man. Over one billion homes in 128 countries. That's nothing to sneeze at. Again, Mr. Michael Chavella has joined us today. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Peace, love. There will be more.